I want to preach to you tonight under this title, The Irony of Life. The Irony of Life. Irony is defined like this. It is an outcome of events contrary to what was or what might have been expected. Okay? An outcome of events contrary to what was or might have been expected. Um, I knew there had to be something out there in cyberspace, some funny things about the ironies of life. And sure enough, I found uh, several pages, but I just went to, to this page because these were good. And I, I did my best to fact check uh, every one of these. As far as I know, um, they're accurate. And so let me, uh, let me share some of these with you. Here's an irony. The Bible is one of the world's most shoplifted books. The father of traffic safety, William Eno, invented the stop sign, crosswalk, traffic circle, one-way street, and taxi stand, but never learned how to drive. That's ironic. The only losing basketball coach in University of Kansas history is James Naismith. Here's why that's important. He invented the game in 1891. Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone but refused to keep one in his study. And here's why. He feared it would distract him from his work. How many years ago was that? (laughs) And he was right. The Ice Hotel in Sweden has a smoke detector. I've never been to the Ice Hotel in Sweden, but if you go, there's going to be a smoke detector. Number six, the second man to survive going over Niagara Falls in a barrel died after slipping on an orange peel. How ironic. The condition, this blows my mind, the condition of not being able to pronounce the letter R is called rhoticism. Sism. Now, who did that? You can't pronounce ours, so you've got rhoticism. Dumb. In 2000, yeah, in 2011, the winners of an elementary school spelling bee in Utah received a trophy reading. Beaumont Spelling Bee, first place. I'll let let you look at that one for a minute, let it sink in. Some of you are going, huh? Lean to the person next to you and explain it to them. Spelling is spelled wrong on a spelling bee trophy. Look at the person next to you and say, that's ironic. (laughs) Yeah. 
In 2002, a tree was planted in a park in Los Angeles in memory of Beatles guitarist George Harrison. The tree later died after being infested by beetles. That is awesome. And I like this one. George Crimmin, the founder of Match.com, encouraged everyone he knew to join it, including his girlfriend. She eventually left him for a man she met on Match.com. <laughs> oh, mercy. Now, some of you are already checking on that. I Listen, I did it. As far as I know, it's correct. Help yourself. Knock yourself out. But don't do it while I'm teaching tonight, Okay. Now, on a more serious note, here's an irony that has really stood out to me uh, of late. And that is this. Rappers rap about guns and violence, and they end up dying at the hand of gun violence. Now, how ironic is that? That's not meant to be funny. That's real. That's real. It's just, it's, it's nuts to me. The truth is, irony exists all around us. It's even found in the Bible. There are times in the scriptures where the irony is very subtle. But then there are others when it is unmistakable, so unmistakable, that it, it seems to be a neon billboard brightly flashing the words, God is at work here. I mean, it's obvious, it's evident that it's the hand of God. Some of the most recognized ironies in the scriptures are in the Old Testament book of Esther. I don't have time to go into all of the, uh, the story of the book of Esther tonight. But it takes place in about 500 B.C. in Persia, which we know as modern-day Iran. And it involves a young Jewish girl who was raised by her uncle. His name was Mordecai. And she becomes the queen of Artaxerxes, and then she plays a pivotal role in stopping the extermination of the Jewish people. If you remember that, that phrase, for such a time as this, is found in the book of Esther, and it's Mordecai. Uh, she needs to go in before the king, but she's not been invited and if you, in those days, if you went into the king's presence without being invited, you would die. And so she was fearful of going in, and her uncle Mordecai made this statement that you are here for such a time as this. And so in response to that, she said, I'll go in, and she said this, if I perish, I perish. The most obvious uh, ironies involve a man named Haman. He was a, a wicked man, 
but he was very trusted. He was a very trusted advisor to the king. And at one point in the story, he tricks the king into passing an edict for the execution of, of all the Jews throughout the land. And so this edict goes out, and they have so many days, and then they're, they're going to be exterminated. And throughout the story of the book of Esther, there is this ongoing antagonism between Mordecai the Jew and Haman the Amalekite, who hated the Jewish people, thus the edict. You remember the, 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 the part of the story there is that um, everybody was to bow down to Haman, and Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman. And so that's when he tricked the king into publishing this. He said there's a group of people who don't respect the king and don't respect his commands and, and, and just went on and on and on and on. And so the king said, well, that's not going to work. What do you think we ought to do? And I told you I wasn't going to tell you the story of the book of Esther, but what do you think we ought to do? And he said, I think all those people ought to die. And so that's when the edict is given to exterminate all of the, uh, the Jewish people because he hated Mordecai and he knew Mordecai was a Jew and he wanted him dead. At one point in the story, Haman, absolutely blinded by his hatred and his anger toward Mordecai, erects a gallows on which he has plans to hang Mordecai. You remember that? But in one of the, the greatest ironies of the whole Bible, not just the book of Esther, but of the whole Bible, it occurs shortly after when Haman, instead of Mordecai, remember Haman had them built to kill Mordecai, but in the end... It was Haman who was hung at the very gallows that he built. The irony is very clear. That's one of those that there's just no, no other way to see it. It is a great irony, and there is no mistaking God is at work here. And then we read about the story of Joseph. And man, is that story filled with tons of, of irony. You remember his brothers uh, sold him into slavery, intending to harm him. Back up a little bit, they digged a pit and, and uh, they threw Joseph in this pit and they took this coat of many colors that his father had made him and they killed an animal and they covered his coat in blood, took it home to his father and said, Dad, we're sorry, but Joseph's dead. An animal got him and killed him. When in reality, they had dumped him in a hole. They were going to leave him there to die, but one of his brothers, I think it was Benjamin, came up with this idea. He didn't want his brother to die in that hole. Come up with this idea, well, let's... Let's get him out. Here comes some merchant men, some Midianite merchant men. Let's sell him, and we'll kill two birds with one stone. We'll get rid of the little punk, 
and will make some money at the same time. And so they do that. And Joseph ends up going into Egypt, and he's in the house of Potiphar, and over and over it says that the things that he did, God blessed him. And so there's, you move on, and there's a famine that, that comes into the land. Joseph has now experienced a, a massive amount of success to the point that he is now ruler over all of Egypt. He's second only to Potiphar. I mean, he's like the vice president of, of, of the, the nation of Egypt there. And he's given the responsibility. There's a famine coming. And so Joseph, you know, they laid up all of this grain for seven years in preparation for seven years of famine. Famine goes down into the land where Joseph's father and his brothers were living, and his father directs them to, to go get some corn. And so they go up there, and um, it's really a, a great story. And finally, in the end, Joseph reveals himself to his father and to his brothers. They begin apologizing because they're convinced that now Joseph's going to kill them. That now Joseph is going to get revenge, finally, going to get revenge on his brothers, and he's going to kill them. And so they start apologizing profusely, and then Joseph makes one of the greatest statements in the Bible, which is so ironic. He said, but as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day, to save much people alive. Translated, God is at work here. You with me? Sorry. We could go to 1 Samuel chapter 15, and there's a, Kind of a neat story, uh, an ironic incident. The Philistines, you remember, had captured the Ark of the Covenant, which in that culture sent the signal that their God, little g, their God was greater than the God of Israel because their God helped them defeat the Israelite God. And so the next day, they uh, placed the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of Dagon. You remember that? And so the Philistines go in, and what do they find? They find that the statue of Dagon had fallen over and was bowing to the Ark of the Covenant. And so they reset the statue. And they go in the next day. And they find the same thing. Dagon had fallen and was bowing before the Ark of the Covenant. 
But this time, his head and his hands had broken off. Once again, to say, God is at work here. And what about the irony in Jonah's story? Jonah, the prophet of God, who should be expected, would you agree, should be expected to obey God. He's the man of God. He's a prophet. He ought to be obeying God. But we know the story. We know what he does. He runs from God. And in a real twist of irony, the pagan sailors and the ungodly Ninevites, so Jonah acts like the unsaved, and the unsaved acts like the saved. They act, they act righteously, and they obey God. We could go to the book of Daniel. Still with me? I'm just trying to show you there's a lot of irony in the Bible. Daniel is left unharmed by the lions in the den where he was tossed by his accusers. Whereas his accusers are torn to pieces by those same lions. What do you think the message is here? Come on. God is at work here. In all of these ironies of the Bible, the underlying message is this. God is at work. And we, can, we go to the New Testament, and, and there's so many there with the, the, the death and the crucifixion and, and the life of Jesus. I, I didn't want to get too bogged down in it. But there's one in, in Mark chapter 10. records the story of Jesus healing a leper. And of course, we, we understand about lepers. They were, they were confined to what they call leper colonies. They were not permitted to have any contact with the community. They couldn't even have contact with their families. They were quarantined. They were held in these, in these colonies full of, of, of lepers. But here's the irony of that story. After Jesus healed this man, then he was obviously free to move about publicly. But yet when people saw that, the publicity that came with that then forced Jesus to withdraw from the public and stay in the wilderness like a leper. So the leper is now running freely, and Jesus is confined to the wilderness like a leper. Consider the irony that we've already seen in the life of the Apostle Paul. He so diligently attempted to stop the spread of the gospel, and he imprisoned and was complicit in the murder of countless numbers of Christians. The Bible puts it like this, he wreaked havoc in the church, hailing men and women 
But yet, he arguably became the man who had the greatest impact on the spread of the gospel in the first century. There's also irony in how Jesus gave Paul. You remember the, what we often refer to as the Macedonian call, come and help us? Here's what's ironic about that. In the vision, Paul saw a man. It was a man who issued the call. Yet it was a woman named Lydia that first opened her heart to the gospel message in Philippi. There's more irony in Paul's life here in our text. And it cries out the same message. God is at work here. And so I'm going to read tonight these first 10 verses. And as I do, I, I want you to try and spot some of the ironies in this part of the story about the life of Paul. Acts chapter 28, I begin reading in verse 1. And when they were escaped, we'll refresh your, your mind here in a minute, but and when they were escaped, then they knew that the island was called Melita. And the barbarous people showed us no little kindness for they kindled a fire and received us, every one, because of the present rain and because of the cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said among themselves, no doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. And he shook off the beast into the fire and felt no harm. Almost preached a message tonight that I was going to call shake it off. And he shook off the beast. Into the fire felt no harm. Howbeit, they looked when he should have swollen or fallen down dead suddenly. But after they had looked a great while and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. In the same quarters were possessions of the chief man of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and lodged us three days courteously. And it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux, to whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, others also which had diseases in the island came and were healed, who also honored us with many honors, 
And when we departed, they laded us with such things as were necessary. Did you see any ironies there? There are some that, that are very subtle, and I'll bring those out. Anybody see anything ironic in that story at all? Huh? All right, we'll get to that. It, it, there is an, an irony with the sacred John. Yeah. Don't you have somewhere else to be? No, he's right. That's ironic. Barbarians showing kindness. I'm going to stop there unless some of you others come up with some. That's a good one. Good observation. Let's start with where they landed. We'll backtrack just a little bit here. If you remember, Paul and 275 other people, most of them prisoners, were on a ship that was sailing to Rome. You remember in the uh, last message, I preached from Acts 27, but I showed you a couple of scriptures, one in chapter 23 and one in another chapter after that, where God said to Paul, you must preach the gospel in Rome. Now there was a place there at the end of Acts chapter 26, after Paul shares his testimony with King Agrippa, and he says, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And then Bernice and, and uh, Agrippa, and I believe it's Festus or Felix, one of, the, one of the other, and his wife, they remove themselves. And, and uh, Agrippa says this, this guy hadn't done anything wrong. And he, I, I, would, I would have just let him go. But he appealed unto Caesar. So now, shucks, now he's got to go to Rome. And so he's on the ship, and they're on their way to Rome, and they encounter this catastrophic storm. You remember that? Eurocladon. And it was so catastrophic and so incredibly severe that they reached a point where they said all hope that we should be saved was lost. And they just let her drive. They had no control over it. They just let it go. Started casting stuff overboard. And just really hoped for the best. They were in desperate need of refuge and rescue for the winter. And in an act of providence, and next, next Wednesday night, we're going to talk about providence. We're going to talk about four pillars of the church here at, at the end of uh, Acts chapter 28 and how God uses these things in the life of, of a church. And one of those things is providence. And we'll look at a lot of examples of, of providence, God's providence in the life of Paul. 
But in this act of providence being the exact location where they landed again screams out, God is at work here because their ship ran aground. You saw it there. Their ship ran aground in a place, an island called Melita. Today we know it as the island of Malta. And here's the irony. You know what Melita or Malta means? It means refuge. Sailors knew the area of Melita as the harbor of refuge. And here's Paul and 275 other individuals in desperate need of refuge and rescue. And God washes their ship aground at a place that means the harbor of refuge. And then we get to what Brother John brought up. There's irony involved in their encounter with people, the people who inhabited the island. They're said to be barbarous people. Later they're called barbarians. When we hear the word barbarian, it carries the connotation of a number of things, of someone who's ignorant and uncivilized and uncul excuse me, uncultured. But most importantly, I don't know about you, but when I think of the word barbarian, I think of somebody who's hostile and somebody who's very savage. Yet here in verse 2, they're showing what Luke calls no little kindness. Which in other words, they're going overboard. Showing kindness to these strangers. I, all day today I kept thinking about Gilligan's Island. Anyway, thought about Gilligan's Island. They washed ashore. And every now and then they would have an episode where these these savages would run out. They had those headdresses on them, skimpy skirts on. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Come on, help me now. Gilligan's Island. If you haven't ever watched Gilligan's Island, you need to find some place where there's a rerun and you need to watch every one of them. They are awesome. Let me tell you how I used to watch Gilligan's Island in the winter. We lived in a trailer house. And had vents in the floor. And I would take the vent, the metal part, off the vent because the air came out faster that way. And I'd grab me a blanket. And I'd put it over there and I'd tuck it under my feet. Build this little tent. This air blow in there. Just me and Gilligan and Ginger and the professor. And we had a good time. Every day after school it was awesome. But I regress. I better come back. Anyway, I think of these barbaric people. But yet here they are. They build them a fire. They give them a place to stay. And then as they get ready to set sail when the winter's over and spring has come, they furnish them with 
supplies that they would need for the rest of their journey. I mean, what an incredible irony. I mean, what could be more oxymoronic than barbaric kindness? I challenge you to go up some, someone tomorrow at work and say, I want to show you some good old-fashioned barbaric kindness. And then let me know how that goes for you. Then we get to the snakes. And another bit of irony. After being bitten by a snake, the natives come to the quick conclusion, this man's a murderer. Well, winner, winner, chicken dinner. You're right. Paul was a murderer. Absolutely he was. And what about this? This, this had to be more than a, a little ironic to the inhabitants of Melita. Paul escapes the mouth of the sea only to be killed by the mouth of a viper. Dude, that's a bad day. You got this huge storm. It is now beating your ship to pieces, literally, because some of the men, if you read the end of chapter 27, the only way they got to shore was they floated on pieces of planks from the ship. The ship is gone, and this guy makes it. Okay, let's go back to the, the funny uh, ironies. Some dude gets in a barrel, sends himself over Niagara Falls, and survives. And then slips on a stupid orange peel and dies. Too bad for you. So you got this guy, he lives another day after almost dying on this ship. And he's picking up a few little twigs to start a fire and a snake bites him. That's ironic. And now they're just sitting there watching because they know what's going to happen. They've seen it happen before. His hand's going to start swelling. And then it's going to be good night. He's going to die. But when they didn't see that happen, they quickly changed their minds and conclude now that this man is a god. And so one minute they think he's being judged by a god. And now he is a god. In just a matter of minutes, Paul went from degenerate to divine. Now isn't that ironic? Some of you aren't having as much fun with this as I am. I love this stuff. Obviously. I love this one. Verses 8 and 9. Let's read them again. And it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux to whom Paul entered in 
and prayed. Look at this phrase. And laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, others also which had diseases in the island came and were healed. So in yet another act of irony, God used Paul's healed hand to be a healing hand. And once again, the message is what, church? God is at work here. In all of these ironies, God is at work. These things don't just happen by accident. So, what is the Holy Spirit trying to teach us through the pen of Luke? I believe it's this. God's plan for our lives include many unexpected twists and turns. Just like Paul, our lives are filled with divine irony. Paul knew. I mean, he knew. God had already told him twice. Paul knew that he would end up in Rome. But what he didn't know, what he never expected, was to be shipwrecked and snake-bitten and then used by God to heal an entire island of sickness while he was en route. Paul didn't know any of that. But guess who did? God knew it. I'm going to read a couple quotes. We're done. These quotes are from a man named Gene Edwards. And, I, and I, here's what I want you to do tonight. I want you to think about the ironies of your own life. I was uh, talking to, can't remember who it was now, some guy from my past. I don't know, we met it, we saw each other somewhere. Said something like this, said, Prater, how are we even still alive? I said, you're telling me. I mean, who climbs a water tower in Tyrone with one hand and rotten apples in the other, or rotten tomatoes in the other hand? And lives to tell about it. Say, what were you doing in rotten tomatoes? I was showing them the cars that passed by on the highway. Tell you, I was a heathen. We used to do all kinds of things like that. You know why there are, you know why they carry cars in enclosed train trailers now? You make your own conclusion. <laughs> I was unsaved, it's under the blood. Listen to this. No one can fully understand the pain you feel as you suffer your present situation. 
whether it came upon you because of circumstances or by the deeds of men, one thing is certain. Before this present tragedy entered into your life, it first passed through the sovereign hand of God. That means that means that God said yes. And then listen to this. Will you follow a God you don't understand? Will you follow a God who does not live up to your expectations? Your Lord has put something in your life which you cannot bear. The burden is simply too great. He was never supposed to do this. But the question remains, will you continue to follow this God who did not live up to your expectations? So here's the deal. Whatever happens to us, I trust that we will be faithful like Paul and in faith be willing to say, God is at work here. Amen?